0: It's Tuesday, October 30th, and this is The Daily Dive. This last week proved that there is still plenty of hate in America, and also that there continues to be a place for it on social media. Many social media platforms have become amplifiers of hate speech, and in many cases, tech companies have shown that they don't have a handle on this. Ina Fried, chief technology correspondent for Axios, joins us to talk about the role of social media in recent violent events next the u.s military is planning to deploy over 5,000 troops to the southern border in a mission called operation faithful patriot as news of a migrant caravan headed toward the u.s continues the president is calling it an invasion that will be met by the military alicia caldwell immigration reporter for the wall street journal joins us for details of the deployment and the backlog of asylum cases in the united states finally A woman is locked in a legal battle with her ex-husband over the fate of her frozen embryos. In this particular case, it sparked the creation of an Arizona law that sides with the party willing to carry the embryos to term. Critics say it could create a legal precedent defining embryos as life in order to chip away at abortion rights. Azine Goreshi, science reporter at BuzzFeed News, joins us for this story, which is one of the subjects of a new Netflix special called Follow This. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. They purport to be something like these viable news outlets or spaces to consume information, but they really essentially cloak really toxic ideologies ranging from anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-immigration. Joining us now is Ina Fried, Chief Technology Correspondent for Axios. We're going to be talking about social media and its recent role in uh, some more violent things that have happened just in the past couple weeks. First off, the man accused in the Pittsburgh synagogue massacre, he appeared briefly in court yesterday. He was in a wheelchair and handcuffs. He was there to face the 29 federal charges there of uh, hate crimes. He was on social media up to five minutes right before his attack, railing against Jews, saying that he wanted all Jews to die and, uh, you know, screw your optics, I'm going in. But Let's talk about social media at large and kind of its role in these latest few things. There was also the mail bomber sending pipe bombs through the mail, uh, also very active on social media. So what do we know about this?
1: I mean, I think if you look at a lot of the recent incidents, you find that not only are they generally the same themes that we see echoing throughout social media, but in many of the cases, the individuals involved have been active on social media. So there's two separate issues. One is the ideas that are swirling. And the second is the actual individuals themselves have had social media presences, in some cases reported as making threats right. and still no action taken.
0: With uh, Caesar Sayak, he is the pipe bomb mailer. He was reported on Twitter for making threats against a political commentator. And at that time, Twitter did nothing.
1: They didn't. They said that it didn't violate their standards. And then after he was arrested, they took down his account and apologized for that. But obviously, that's too little too late. This happens a lot with Twitter, where unless it's a very specific threat against a very specific individual, and even then sometimes like this where it is, we don't see action taken until after
0: the fact. In that case, he tweeted Rochelle Ritchie. And said, we will see you for sure. Hug your loved ones real close every time you leave home. I mean, that to me sounds like a threat. As in, I'm following you. I'm going to meet you somewhere. Hug your loved ones before you don't get a chance to do it again. So for them to not say that, that that wasn't a threat... That's hard to swallow. What do we know about the Pittsburgh shooter and this other social media website called gab.com? Many people
1: haven't heard of gab. It was set up because actually there were some people getting kicked off Twitter and other mainstream sites. And so they wanted a, free speech, and I put that in quotes, place where they could share their ideas. So Gab was formed largely right-wing and alt-right figures to have a place to, quote, freely talk about these ideas. And so Gab has been allowing a wide range of, quote, free speech that includes just virulent hate and so forth. And that's that's just part of what they stood for. They are down right now because a lot of the partners that they need to keep a website going from hosting services to payment services, have now dropped the service because, in fact, the suspect in the Pittsburgh shooting had been very active and very clear, uh, as you mentioned, even just a few minutes before the shooting about what he intended to do.
0: The person who did the shootings in Pittsburgh, he acted alone, but he found a home here, and uh, people question whether these sites play a part in that.
1: I think there's two issues. One, are you allowing specific people to make specific threats In this case, you know, the answer appears to be yes. And that's certainly the line at which, you know, a lot of tech companies said we're not going to do business with Gab any longer. In terms of these ideas spreading, there's a school of thought out there that if you allow and amplify this sort of hate speech that you don't know who it's going to find an audience with, but you can actually be pretty sure... It's going to resonate with someone and someone somewhere is going to take action based on it. And I think we're starting to see that, whether it's the president himself, lots of people espousing very angry hate at groups like immigrants, at um, media outlets. And I think it is clear that it's finding a home. We're seeing a, a rise in these sorts of incidents. And I, unfortunately, social media does serve to amplify and anonymize these feelings, making it easier to spread hate. There's a lot that social media sites can do, not just banning you know, the stuff that's clearly over the line, but also not promoting the stuff that is Demonstrably false. There's all these false memes. In the same piece I wrote for our newsletter, I talked about all the false hatred that's still live on Twitter. So memes right. that George Soros was a Nazi. He was in fact a Holocaust victim. <laughs> like you know, there's a lot that's getting through and being promoted that doesn't need to be.
0: You brought up memes, and I think it's just kind of an interesting aside of from this. You know, people can post words and they can be hateful and all that stuff and wrong. All this. But then memes come into play, and they're just pictures. Obviously, sometimes they have text, but you know those can be just as damaging, and, and a lot of people are, are quick to dismiss those a lot of times.
1: Well, there's two issues with memes. One, they spread faster because they're catchy, and right. they're too Uh, Because the text is sometimes part of the image and not text, it's harder for computers. And a lot of the companies, because of the scale, rely on automated filtering. It can be harder for the automated filters to catch. So you kind of have a double whammy with memes. But again, some examples of some awful, hateful stuff that's been live for years on Twitter, and still some of it remains up to this day. Uh, So I, I think, you know, obviously we need to be as vigilant, whether it's an image or text or some combination.
0: The immediate pressure on Gab.com pushed them off the Internet for now. But this also puts the other big social media platforms, Facebook and Twitter, puts pressure on them to continue their efforts to stamp out this type of uh, hate speech and, and be a platform for for everybody, you know, that everybody can kind of be there without having to be subject to this stuff.
1: I think it will be interesting to see what sort of pressure not just governments and laws but also people and users put on the companies to to maybe err on the side of caution. But again these are these are tough questions. Look, if it was easy, you know, I think all the companies would have taken action. It's not easy. Um, I think there's certainly a wide belief that they haven't been making all the right calls, but they're certainly not simple challenges with simple answers.
0: Ina Freed, Chief Technology Correspondent for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
1: We will not allow a large group to enter the U.S. unlawfully. We will maintain lawful trade and travel to the greatest extent possible, We will act in accordance with the highest principles of law enforcement. Joining us
0: now is Alicia Caldwell, covering immigration for The Wall Street Journal. We are now getting word that the U.S. military is planning to deploy 5,000 troops to the southwest U.S. border. This is all in anticipation of the migrant caravan that is on its way, that has drawn the ire of the president. What do we know about this new plan?
2: There'll be upward of 5,000 active duty military, the Pentagon just said in Washington, They're starting their deployment now with folks heading to South Texas, which is the busiest crossing point right now, at least in terms of illegal immigration. So people coming between the ports of entry, they're planning to help, in their word, help the Department of Homeland Security, quote, harden the border, as well as ports of entry specifically. There appears to be a concern that, that people will overwhelm or potentially even overrun legal border crossings across the U.S.-Mexico border that has become an issue because in the last several months, the Department of Homeland Security has told would-be asylum-seeking migrants to go to ports of entry, that it's a crime, it's a federal misdemeanor to cross the border illegally between those ports. They've said, go to the port of entry, stand in line, and we will process you and allow you to apply for asylum as is uh, the practice
0: under U.S. law. The group right now from reports say that they're still about 1,000 miles away. There's no indication which port of entry they might be favoring, which one they might be trying to get to, whether Texas or California or Arizona?
2: Right. They are actually about 900 miles away right now. The closest crossing point is the border in South Texas. You would tack on upward of 1,000 miles to go toward the Tijuana, San Diego area.
0: The Mexican government is offering them jobs and temporary work visas and things like that, but not everybody is taking them. I think uh, I saw a number of maybe about 2,000 people that have stopped and accepted asylum in Mexico, but what is the word on why more people aren't stopping or, or why are, uh, everybody still wants to make their way to the United States?
2: You know, I'm, I'm not with the events so it's a little bit difficult for me to say exactly why, but generally speaking, there are some people who don't feel safe in Mexico, whether it be LGBTQ migrants or others who who just don't feel safe in Mexico, so they're going to continue to to try to make their way north. There's actually a second group that appears to have formed south of Mexico and in Guatemala and, and south, making their way to the Guatemala-Mexico border in the last couple of days. So you're talking about potentially two groups. It's hard to know if they're distinct two groups or if people have fallen off and maybe tried to come back. But you're talking about a couple to several thousand people and folks are, are making their own decisions about where they want to go and where they want to stay, as you said about 2,000 or so, have decided to to stay and apply for asylum in Mexico. We'll see what happens. It's a long trip.
0: And the president has been very forceful in denouncing this caravan. He says, don't come here. The military is waiting for you. It is true that the United States is struggling how to deal with the surge in asylum claims. I think back in 2009, there were about 5,000 claims. Last year, there were 73,000 claims. And the government did say that 76% of those were viewed as credible. So then that puts people into the system. It takes time, you know, weeks and months sometimes to work people through the system. And the backlog is there. And it's tough for the United States to process these people. And the president doesn't want them coming. Right. He's not been subtle. He's in fact
2: said, go home. Obviously not everybody has heeded that suggestion or or demand. As you said, the 76% figure being found credible, there's, there's a multi-stage process in Right. in asylum, and this is where it gets complicated. 75 to 80% of people pass what's called the, the credible fear bar, which is this initial cursory interview with an asylum officer to say, here's why I'm concerned to go back to my country. The majority of people pass that initial bar, which is generally fairly low, but only about 20% of all asylum seekers will actually ultimately be approved for asylum. But as you said, it's, it's a massive backlog of court cases in the immigration court, which is separate. From criminal courts, it's I believe upward of 760,000 pending cases, and that backlog grows every day. So it can take three or four years sometimes for an asylum case to work itself out. And at a 20% success rate of for all asylum seekers, the the Trump administration has said that gap is too high. Too many people are being allowed to start the process who will ultimately not be successful. And yet they're allowed generally to stay in the United States during that period. And for those who aren't detained, you're allowed to apply for a work permit as well. And, and the government will then give you permission to work while you're here waiting for your asylum case to work its way through the system. So you're becoming a potentially productive member of society or you're paying taxes and, and so on and establishing roots in the United States for an as yet indefinite period of time.
0: This new military deployment is being called Operation Faithful Patriot by the Pentagon. The president and the administration is heavily invested in this, especially right now ahead of the midterm election. So we'll keep monitoring it. Alicia Caldwell, reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Embryos have more disposition issues. If a woman is married, if she has eggs frozen, they're her property and sperm is his property. Once you put them together, they're joint property.
2: Right. And we know how
0: joint property goes when things don't work out. Joining us now is Azeen Goreshi, reporter for BuzzFeed News. A woman is locked in a legal battle for her frozen embryos. She's fighting over them with her husband, her ex-husband. We've seen a lot of these stories in just recent memory. One most notably, Sophia Vergara, the actress, was in a lawsuit with her ex-husband also. But this story, we're going to talk about Ruby Torres' The reason why this one is so interesting is that it inspired a new Arizona law. And a lot of people say it could set a dangerous legal precedent defining embryos as life. And people say it could be chipping away at abortion rights. Tell us uh, a little bit about Ruby Torres and her story.
3: Ruby is a lawyer in Phoenix, and she was sort of dating someone on and off when, in June of 2014, she was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of breast cancer. She was 33 at the time, and basically her doctors told her that she had to undergo chemotherapy, and because of the type of cancer she had, the treatment might leave her infertile. But Ruby really wanted to have kids. So she was given 30 days to make a decision about what to do before her treatment started. And she spoke with her boyfriend at the time, John Terrell, and he agreed to participate with her and go through IVF, in vitro fertilization, to extract her eggs, fertilize them with his sperm, and then freeze them and store them until a later date when she could potentially use them to have kids. Ruby then went through her cancer treatment. Oh, I should say a month after her diagnosis, the couple also got married read then they actually ended up going through a divorce. So in 2016, Terrell decided he wanted a divorce. And as part of the divorce proceedings, they went through everything fairly fairly easily, except they both got stuck on the issue of these embryos and what to do with them. Ruby still wanted to be able to use those embryos, which is what she intended at the beginning. And Terrell was like, I don't want to have children with you. All I right. want a divorce. You know, we've seen something like a dozen of these cases, like you mentioned, Sophia Vergara's case, happen across the country where, um, you know, someone wants to use these embryos. Someone else doesn't feels like they have the right to not have those embryos become babies. And judges are forced to sort of deliberate that.
0: And a lot of times they side with the person that doesn't want to have the baby. They don't want to force somebody into parenthood. And why this became so controversial is that Arizona passed the law saying, well, in these cases, we're going to defer to the person who does want to have the baby, who does want to take the embryo to term, and we're going mm-hmm. to hand it over to them.
3: Yeah. So I think in the few cases where judges have ruled in the favor of the person who wants them, it has been in these cases like Ruby's where it's their last chance of procreating. But usually judges have ruled against the embryos being used and usually judges rule in favor of the contracts that couples are forced to sign at fertility clinics, whatever the terms of that contract were, being enforced. And sure enough, in Ruby's case, the judge ended up ruling that they needed to follow the terms of the contract, which was to donate the embryos to other infertile couples. So Ruby is now in this situation where she's essentially, you know, giving up the last chance she has to have these children to someone else. And I think that really stings for her. But something that the fertility doctors that are increasingly sort of worried about this have stated, you know, we have something like over a million of these frozen embryos now stored in tanks across the country. And, and this this one fertility doctor in New York, I think she put it in a great way. Um, you know, if, if a woman freezes her eggs, they're her property. And if a man freezes his sperm, it's his property. But once you put them together, it is absolutely one right. organism and it is joint property. And you can't split that up.
0: And as cold as it sounds, it's all in the contract. If you write in the contract, you know, I'll take them if we, in the case we divorce or break up, then that's great. But people don't have that that forethought when they're making these things. And as you were saying, you know, there's a number, millions possibly of frozen embryos in the United States right now, and there's little regulation over that. So it's mm-hmm. uh, it, it makes its way into the courts, and it makes its way into these Arizona laws, you know, Mm -hmm. such as in this case, uh, and and it's for the courts to decide a lot of times.
3: And I think that's what is causing a lot of legal experts alarm is the Arizona law is the first time we've ever seen a piece of legislation about these frozen embryos across the whole country. And what particularly pro-choice advocates are worried about is that this law, by prioritizing the person who wants to have a baby, it's drawing a certain line about what these embryos are and it's attempting to characterize them as life. So uh, Mm -hmm.
0: Ruby Torres is waiting for a final decision on whether she can get those embryos back. I know a decision is expected sometime soon. You're doing this story as part of a new Netflix special that BuzzFeed is doing called Follow This. Tell us about that real quick.
3: Sure. So, yeah, it's a it's a news documentary series. It's going to be 20 episodes. The last batch is being released on November 1st, and it's just 15-minute sort of mini segments on different news issues across the world. And it's featuring BuzzFeed news reporters from all across the newsroom just diving into these topics that are particularly I think relevant to a lot of young viewers.
0: I suggest everybody go and check these out. They're totally digestible, easy to watch, and you learn a lot of stuff from these. So, thank you very much. Azine Gureshi, science reporter mm-hmm. for BuzzFeed News. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.